0: chapter thirteen of the old maids club by israel zangwill this librivox recording is in the public domain the english shakespeare by a thorough knowledge of the natural laws which govern the operations of human nature and by a careful application of the fine properties of well selected men and a judicious use of every available instrument of log rolling the mutual depreciation society gradually built up a constitution strong enough to defy every tendency to disintegration hundreds of subtle malcontents floated round ready to attack wherever there was a weak point but foiled by ignorance of the society's existence and the members escaped many a fatal shift by keeping themselves entirely to themselves the idea of the mutual depreciation society Was that every member should say what he thought of the others. The founders, who all took equal shares in it, were Tom Brown, Dick Jones, Harry Robinson. Their object in founding the Mutual Depreciation Society was, of course, to achieve literary success, but they soon perceived that their phalanx was too small for this, and as they had no power to add to their number except by inviting strangers from without. They took steps to induce three other gentlemen to solicit the privileges of membership. The second batch comprised Taffy Owen, Andrew McKay, Patrick Boyle. These six gentlemen, being all blessed with youth, health, and incompetence, resolved to capture the town. Their tactics were very simple, though their first operations were hampered by their ignorance of one another's thus it was some time before it was discovered that andrew mackay who had been deployed to seize the saturday slasher had no real acquaintance with the editor's fencing-master while dick jones who had undertaken to bombard the acadium had started under the impression that the eminent critic to whom he had dedicated his poems by permission was still connected with the staff But these difficulties were eliminated as soon as the society got into working order. Everything comes to him who will not wait, and almost before they had time to wink, our six gentlemen had secured the makings of an influence. Each had loyally done his best for himself and the rest, and the first spoils of the campaign, as announced amid applause by the secretary at the monthly dinner, were two morning papers two evening papers two weekly papers they were not the most influential nor even the best circulated still it was not a bad beginning though of course only a nucleus by putting out tentacles in every direction by undertaking to write even on subjects with which they were acquainted they gradually secured a more or less tenacious connection with the majority of the better journals and magazines on taking stock they found that the account stood thus three morning papers four evening papers eleven weekly papers thirteen london letters seven dramatic columns six monthly magazines thirteen influences on advertisements nine friendships with eminent editors seventeen ditto with eminent sub-editors six ditto with lady journalists fifty-three loans, at two and six each, to press men, one hundred and nine mentions of editors' women kind, at fashionable receptions. It showed what could be achieved by six men working together shoulder to shoulder for the highest aims in a spirit of mutual goodwill and brotherhood. They were undoubtedly greatly helped by having all been to Oxford or Cambridge, but still much was the legitimate result of their own manoeuvres. By the time the secret campaign had reached this stage, many well-meaning, unsuspecting men, not included in the above inventory, had been pressed into the service of the society, with the members of which they were connected by the thousand and one ties which spring up naturally in the course of the world, so that there was hardly any journal in the three kingdoms on which the society could not by some hook or the other fasten a paragraph if we accept such publications as the newgate calendar and lloyd's shopping list which record history rather than make it indeed the success of the society in this department was such as to suggest the advisability of having themselves formally incorporated under the company's acts for the manufacture and distribution of paragraphs for which they had unequalled facilities, and had obtained valuable concessions, and it was only the publicity required by law which debarred them from enlarging their home trade to a profitable industry for the benefit of non-members. For, by the peculiar nature of the machinery, it could only be worked if people were unaware of its existence. They resolved, however, that when they had made their pile, they would start the newspaper of the future, which any philosopher with an eye to the trend of things can see will be a journal written by advertisers for gentlemen, and will contain nothing calculated to bring a blush to the cheek of the young person except cosmetics. Contemporaneously, with the execution of one side of the plan of campaign, the society was working the supplementary side. Day and night, weekdays and Sundays, in season and out— These six gentlemen praised themselves and one another, or got themselves and one another praised by non members. There are many ways in which you can praise an author, from blame downwards. There is the puff categorical and the puff allusive, the lie direct and the eulogy insinuative, the downright abuse and the subtle innuendo, the exaltation of your man or the depression of his rival the attacking method of log-rolling must not be confounded with depreciation in their outside campaign the members used every variety of puff but depreciation was strictly reserved for their private gatherings for this was the wisdom of the club and herein lay its immense superiority over every other log-rolling club that whereas in these childish cliques every man is expected to admire every other or to say so in the Mutual Depreciation Society the obligation was all the other way. Every man was bound by the rules to sneer at the work of his fellow-members, and, if he should happen to admire any of it, at least to have the grace to keep his feelings to himself. In practice, however, the latter contingency never arose, and each was able honestly to express all he thought for it is impossible for men to work together for a common object without discovering that they do not deserve to get it needless to point out how this sagacious provision strengthened them in their campaign for not having to keep up the tension of mutual admiration and being able to relax and breathe and express themselves freely at their monthly symposia as well as to slang one another in the street they were able to write one another up with a clear conscience. It is well to found on human nature. Every other basis proves shifting sand. The success of the Mutual Depreciation Society justified their belief in human nature. Not only did they depreciate one another, but they made reparation to the non-members they were always trying to write down during business hours, by eulogizing them in the most generous manner in those blessed hours of leisure when knife answers fork and soul speaks to soul at such times even popular authors are allowed to have a little merit it was at one of these periods of soul expansion when the most petty souled feels inclined to loosen the last two buttons of his waistcoat that the idea of the english shakespeare was first mooted but we are anticipating which is imprudent as anticipations are seldom realized one of the worst features of prosperity is that it is cloying and when the first gloss of novelty and adventure had worn off the free lances of the mutual depreciation society began to bore one another you can get tired even of hearing your own dispraises and the members were compelled to spice their mutual adverse criticism in the highest manner so as to compensate for its staleness the jaded appetite must needs be pampered if it is to experience anything of that relish which a natural healthy hunger for adverse criticism can command so easily this was the sort of thing that went on at the dinners i say tom said andrew mckay What in heaven's name made you publish your waste-paper basket under the name of Stray Thoughts? For utter and incomprehensible idiocy, they are only surpassed by Dick's last volume of poems. I shouldn't have thought such things could come out even of a lunatic asylum, certainly not without a keeper. Really, you fellows ought to consider me a little. We do. We consider you as little as they make them, they interrupted simultaneously it isn't fair to throw all the work on me he went on how can i go on saying that tom brown is the supreme thinker of the time the deepest intellect since hegel with a gift of style that rivals berkeley's if you go on turning out twaddle that a copy-book would boggle at how can i keep repeating that for sure and consummate art for unfailing certainty of insight for unerring visualization for objective subjectivity and for subjective objectivity for Swinburnian sweep of music and shakespearean depth of suggestiveness dick jones can have forty in a hundred spot stroke bard to all other contemporary poets if you continue to spew out rhymes as false as your teeth rhythms as musical as your voice when you read them and words that would drive a drawing-room composer mad with envy to set them i maintain it is not sticking to the bargain to expose me to the danger of being found out you ought at least to have the decency to wrap up your fatuousness in longer words or more abstruse themes you're both so beastly intelligible that a child can understand you are asses tut tut andrew said taffy owen it's all very well of you to talk who've only got to do the criticism and I think it's deuced ungrateful of you after we've written you up into the position of leading English critic, to want us to give you straw for your bricks. Do we ever complain when you call us cataclysmic, creative, esimplastic, or even epicene? We know it's rot, but we put up with it. When you said that Robinson's last novel had all the glow and genius of Dickens without his humor— all the ripe wisdom of thackeray without his social knowingness all the imaginativeness of shakespeare without his definiteness of characterization we all saw at once that you were incautiously allowing the donkey's ears to protrude too obviously from beneath the lion's skin but did anyone grumble did robinson though the edition was sold out the day after did i though you had just called me a modern buddhist with the soul of an ancient greek and the radiant fragrance of a singalese tea-planter i know these phrases take the public and i try to be patient owen is right harry robinson put in emphatically when you said i was a cross between a scandinavian scald and a dutch painter i bore my cross in silence yes but what else can a fellow say when you give the public such heterogeneous and formless balderdash that there is nothing for it but to pretend it's a new style an epoch-making work the foundation of a new era in literary art really i think you others have out and away the best of it it's much easier to write bad books than to eulogize their merits in an adequately plausible manner i think it's playing it too low upon a chap the way you fellows are going on it's taking a mean advantage of my position and who put you in that position i should like to know yelled dick jones becoming poetically excited didn't we lift you up into it on the point of our pens fortunately they were not very pointed ejaculated the great critic wriggling uncomfortably at the suggestion i don't deny that of course all i say is you're giving me away now you give yourself away shrieked owen vehemently with a pound of that singalese tea how is it boyle managed to crack up our plays without being driven to any of this new-fangled nonsense plays said patrick looking up moodily anything is good enough for plays you see i can always fall back on the acting and crack up that I had to do that with Owen's thing at the lie-market. My notice read like a gushing account of the play. In reality, it was all devoted to the players. The trick of it is not easy. Those who can read between the lines could see that there were only three of them about the piece itself, and yet the outside public would never dream I was shirking the expression of an opinion about the merits of the play, or the pinning myself to any definite statement." The only time, Owen, I dare say, that your plays are literature, is when they are a frost, for that both explains the failure and justifies you. But, and you love me, Taffy, or if you have any care for my reputation, do not, I beg of you, be enticed into the new folly of printing your plays. But things have come to that stage, I must do it, said Owen, or incur the suspicion of illiterateness no no pleaded patrick in horror sooner than that i will damn all the other printed plays and block, and say that the real literary playwrights conscious of their position are too dignified to resort to this cheap method of self-assertion but you will not carry out your threat remember how dangerously near you came to exposing me over your nuquette. the club laughed everyone knew the incident for it was Patrick's stock grievance against the dramatist. Patrick, being out of town, had written his eulogy of this play of Owen's from his inner consciousness. On the fourth night, in deference to Owen's persuasions, he had gone to see Naquette. After the tragedy, Owen found him seated moodily in the stalls, long after the audience had filed out. "'Knocked you, old man, this time, eh?' queried Owen, laughing complacently. "'Yes, all to pieces,' snarled Patrick savagely. "'I shall never believe in my critical judgment again. I dare not look my notice in the face. When I wrote Niquette was a masterpiece, I thought at least there would be some merit in it. I didn't bargain for such rot as this.' In this wise things would have gone on, from bad to worse, had heaven not created Cecilia nineteen years before. Cecilia was a tall, fair girl with dreamy eyes and unpronounced opinions, who longed for the ineffable with an unspeakable yearning. Frank Gray loved her. He always knew he was going to, and one day he did it. After that it was impossible to drop the habit, and at last he went so far as to propose, He was a young lawyer, with a fondness for manly sports and a wealth of blonde moustache. "'Cecilia,' he said, "'I love you. Will you be mine?' He had a habit of using unconventional phrases. "'No, Frank,' she said gently, and there was a world and several satellites of tenderness in her tremulous tones. "'It cannot be!' "'Ah, do not decide so quickly,' he pleaded, "'I will not press you for an answer.' "'I would press you for an answer if I could,' replied Cecilia, "'but I do not love you.' "'Why not?' he demanded desperately. "'Because you are not what I should like you to be?' "'And what would you like me to be?' he demanded eagerly. "'If I told you, you would try to become it?' "'I would,' he said enthusiastically be it what it may i would leave no stone unturned i would work strive study reform anything everything i feared so she said despondently that is why i will not tell you don't you understand that your charm to me is your being just yourself your simple honest manly self I will not have my enjoyment of your individuality spoilt by your transmogrification into some unnatural product of the forcing-house. No, Frank, let us be true to ourselves, not to each other. I shall always remain your friend, looking up to you as to something staunch, sturdy, stalwart, coming to consult you, unprofessionally, in all my difficulties, i will tell you all my secrets frank so that you will know more of me than if i married you dear friend let it remain as i say it is for the best so frank went away broken-hearted and joined the mutual depreciation society he did not care what became of him how they came to let him in was this he was the one man in the world outside who knew all about them having been engaged as the Society's legal adviser, It was he who made their publishers and managers sit in an erect position. In applying for a more intimate connection, he stated that he had met with a misfortune, and a little monthly abuse would enliven him. The Society decided that, as he was already half one of themselves, and as he had never written a line in his life, and so could not diminish their takings, nothing but good could ensue from the infusion of new blood. In fact, they wanted it badly. Their mutual recriminations had degenerated into mere platitudes. With a new man to insult and be insulted by, something of the old animation would be restored to their proceedings. The wisdom of the policy was early seen, for the first fruit of it was the English Shakespeare, who for a whole year daily opened out new and exciting perspectives of sensation and amusement to a blasé society andrew mackay had written an enthusiastic article in the so-called nineteenth century on the cochin china shakespeare and set all tongues wagging about the new literary phenomenon with whose verses the boatmen of the irrawaddy rocked their children to sleep on the cradle of the river and whose dramas were played in eight hours slices in the strolling booths of shanghai andrew had already arranged with any man to bring out a translation from the original cochin chinese for there was no language he could not translate from provided it were sufficiently unknown cochin chinese shakespeare indeed said dick jones at the next symposium why judging from the copious extracts you gave from his greatest drama baby bantam it is the most tedious drivel you might have written it yourself where is the shakespearean quality of this which is you say the whole of act 13 hang ho out sia does your mother know you are sia i have no mother but i have a child where is the shakespearean quality Repeated Andrew, do you not feel the perfect pathos of those two lines, the infiniteness of incisive significance? To me, they paint the whole scene in two strokes of matchless simplicity, strophe and antistrophe. Fusia, the repentant outcast, and Hang Ho, whose honest love she rejected, stand out as in a flash of lightning. Nay, Shakespeare himself never wrote an act of such tragic brevity packed so full of the sense of ananke, why so far from it being tedious drivel a lady in whose opinion i have great confidence and to whom i sent my article told me afterwards that she couldn't sleep till she had read it the mutual depreciation society burst into a roar of laughter and andrew realized that he had put his foot into it don't you think it a shame broke in frank gray that we english are debarred from having a shakespeare there's been one discovered lately in belgium and we have already a dutch shakespeare a french shakespeare a german shakespeare and an american shakespeare english is the only language in which we can't get one it seems cruel that we should be just the one nation in the world to be cut off from having a nineteenth-century shakespeare Every patriotic Briton must surely desire that we could discover an English Shakespeare to be put aside these vaunted foreign phenomena. "'But an English Shakespeare is a bull,' said Patrick Boyle, who had a keen eye for such. "'Precisely a John Bull,' replied Frank. "'Peace! Peace! I would willingly look out for one,' said Andrew Mackay thoughtfully." but I cannot venture to insinuate yet that Shakespeare did not write English. The time is scarcely ripe, though it is maturing fast. Otherwise the idea is tempting. "'But why take the words in their natural meaning?' demanded Tom Brown, the philosopher, in astonishment. Is it not unapparent that an English Shakespeare would be a great writer more saturated with Anglo-Saxon spirit than Shakespeare?' who was cosmic and for all time and for every place. Hamlet, Othello, Lady Macbeth—these are world types, not English characters. Our English Shakespeare must be more adochthontic, more chauvinist, or more provincial and more bornay, if you like to put it that way. His scenes must be rooted in English life, and his personages must smack of British soil." There was much table-thumping when the philosopher ceased. "'Excellent!' said Andrew. "'He must be found. "'It will be the greatest boom of the century. "'But whom can we discover?' "'There is John P. Smith,' said Tom Brown. "'No, why John P. Smith? "'He has merit,' objected Taffy Owen. "'And then he has never been in our set. "'And besides, he would not be satisfied.' said patrick boyle that is true said andrew Mackay reflectively i know owen you would like to be the subject of the discovery but i am afraid it is too late i have taken your measurements and laid down the chart of your genius too definitely to alter now you are permanently established in business as the dainty neo hellenic buddhist who has chosen to express himself through farcical comedy if you were just starting life i could work you into this english Shakespearedom. i am always happy to put a good thing in the way of a friend but at your age it is not easy to go into a new line well but put in harry robinson if none of us is to be the english shakespeare why should we give over the appointment to an outsider charity begins at home that is a difficulty admitted andrew puckering his brow it brings us to a standstill seductive therefore as the idea is i am afraid it has occurred to us too late they sat in thoughtful silence then suddenly frank gray flashed in with a suggestion that took their breath away for a moment and restored it to them charged with bravos the moment after but why should he exist at all why indeed the more they pondered the matter the less necessity they saw for it pon my word gray you are right said andrew right as talleyrand when he told the thief who insisted that he must live my monsieur je n'en vois pas la necessité it's an inspiration said tom brown moved out of his usual apathy we all remember how whately proved that the emperor napoleon never existed and the plausible way he did it how few persons actually saw the emperor how did even these know that what they saw was the emperor conversely it should be as easy as possible for us six to put a non-existent english shakespeare on the market you remember what voltaire said of god that if there were none it would be necessary to invent him in like manner patriotism calls upon us to invent the english shakespeare yes won't it be awful fun said patrick boyle the idea was taken up eagerly the modus operandi was discussed and the members parted effervescing with enthusiasm and anxious to start the campaign immediately the english shakespeare was to be named fladpick a cognomen which once seen would hook itself on to the memory the very next day a leading article in the daily herald casually quoted fladpick's famous line "Coffined in english you he sleeps in peace and throughout the next month in the most out-of-the-way and unlikely quarters the word fladpick lurked and sprang upon the reader lines and phrases from fladpick were quoted gradually the thing worked up gathering momentum on its way and going more and more of itself like an ever-swelling snowball which needs but the first push down the mountain side soon a leprosy of fladpick broke out over the journalism of the day the very office boys caught the infection and in their book reviews they dragged in fladpick with an air of antediluvian acquaintance Writers were said not to possess Fladpick's imagination, though they might have more sense of style, or they were said not to possess Fladpick's sense of style, though they might have more imagination. Certain epithets and tricks of manner were described as quite Fladpickian, while others were mentioned as extravagant and as disdained by writers like, say, Fladpick. Young authors were paternally invited to mold themselves on Fladpick, while others were contemptuously dismissed as mere imitators of fladpick by this time fladpick's poetic dramas began to be asked for at the libraries and the libraries said they were all out this increased the demand so much that the libraries told their subscribers they must wait till the new edition which was being hurried through the press was published when things had reached this stage Queries about Fladpick appeared in the literary and professionally inquisitive papers, and answers were given with reference to the editions of Fladpick's book. It began to leak out that he was a young Englishman, who had lived all his life in Tartary, and that his book had been published by a local firm, and enjoyed no inconsiderable reputation among the English Tartars there, but that the copies which had found their way to England were extremely scarce, and had come into the hands of only a few cognoscenti, who, being such, were enabled to create for him the reputation he so thoroughly deserved. The next step was to contradict this, and the press teemed with biographies and counterbiographies. Dazzler also wired numerous interviews, but an authoritative statement was inserted in the Acadium, signed by Andrew McKay, stating that they were unfounded and paragraphs began to appear detailing how Fladpick spent his life in dodging the interviewers. Anecdotes of Fladpick were highly valued by editors of newspapers, and very plenteous they were, for Fladpick was known to be a cosmopolitan, always sailing from pole to pole, and caring little for residence in the country of which he yet bade fair to be the laureate. These anecdotes girdled the globe even more quickly than their hero, and they returned from foreign parts, bronzed and almost unrecognizable, to set out immediately on fresh journeys in their new guise. A parody of one of his plays was inserted in a comic paper, and it was brooded abroad that Andrew Mackay was collaborating with him in preparing one of his dramas for representation at the Independent Theatre. This set the older critics by the ears, and they protested vehemently in their theatrical columns against the infamous ethics propagated by the new writer, quoting largely from the specimens of his work given in Mackay's article in the Fortnightly Review. Patrick, who wrote the dramatic criticism for seven papers, led the attack upon the audacious iconoclast. Journalisia was convulsed by the quarrel. And even young ladies asked their partners in the giddy waltz whether they were fladpickiots or anti fladpickiots. You could never be certain of escaping fladpick at dinner, for the lady you took down was apt to take you down by her contempt of your ignorance of fladpick's awfully sweet writings. Any amount of people promised one another introductions to fladpick and those who had met him enjoyed quite a reflected reputation in Belgravian circles. As to the Fladpickian parties, which brother geniuses like Dick Jones and Harry Robinson gave to the great writer, it was next to impossible to secure an invitation to them, and comparatively few boasted of the privilege. Fladpick reaped a good deal of kudos from refusing to be lionized And preferring the society of men of letters like himself, during his rare halting moments in England. Long before this stage, Mackay had seen his way to introducing the catchword of the conspiracy, the English Shakespeare. He defended vehemently the ethics of the great writer, claiming that they were at core essentially at one with those of the great nation from whence he sprang and whose very lifeblood had passed into his work. This brought about a reaction, and all over the country the scribblers hastened to do justice to the maligned writer, and an elaborate analysis of his most subtle characters was announced as having been undertaken by Mr. Patrick Boyle. And when it was stated that he was to be included in the contemporary Men of Letters series, the advance orders for the work were far in advance of the demand for Fladpick's actual writings. Shakespearean, the English Shakespeare, was now constantly used in connection with his work, and even the most hard-hearted reviewers promised themselves to skim his book in their next summer holidays. About this time, too, Dazzler unconsciously helped the society by announcing that Fladpick was dying of consumption in a snow-hut in Greenland, and it was felt that he must either die or go to a warmer climate, if not both the news of his pathistic weakness put the seal upon his genius, and the great heart of the nation went out to him in his lonely snow-hut, but returned on learning that the report was a canard. Still, the danger he had passed through endeared him to his country, and within a few months Fladpick, the English Shakespeare, was definitely added to the glories of the national literature, founding a whole school of writers in his own country attracting considerable attention on the continent and being universally regarded as the centre of the victorian renaissance but this was the final stage a little before it was reached cecilia came to frank gray to pour her latest trouble into his ear for she had carefully kept her promise of bothering him with her most intimate details and the lovesick young lawyer had listened to her petty psychology with a patience which would have brought him in considerable fees, if invested in the usual way. But this time the worry was genuine. "'Frank,' she said, "'I am in love.' The young man turned as white as a sheet. The sword of Damocles had fallen at last, sundering them forever. "'With whom?' he gasped. "'With Mr. Fladpick.' "'The English Shakespeare?' the same but you have never seen him i have seen his soul i have divined him from his writings i have studied andrew mckay's essays on him i feel that he and i are en rapport but this is madness i know it is i have tried to fight against it i have applied for permission to the old maids club so as to stifle my hopeless passion once i have joined miss dulcimer's society I shall perhaps find peace again great heavens think think before you take this terrible step are you sure it is love you feel not admiration no it is love at first i thought it was admiration and probably it was for i was not likely to be mistaken in the analysis of my feelings in which i have had much practice but gradually I felt it a and sending forth tender shoots clad in delicate green buds, and a sweet wonder came upon me, and I knew that love was struggling to get itself born in my soul. Then suddenly the news came that he I loved was ill, dying in that lonely snow-hut in grim greenland, and then in the tempest of grief that shook me I knew that my life was bound up with his. Watered by my hot tears, the love in my heart burgeoned and blossomed like some strange tropical passion flower. And when the reassuring message that he was strong and well flashed through the world, I felt that if he lived not for me, the universe were a blank, and next year's daisies would grow over my early grave. She burst into tears. A great writer has always been the ideal which I would not tell you of it is the one thing i have kept from you but oh frank frank he can never be mine he will probably never know of my existence and the most i can ever hope for is his autograph to-morrow i shall join the old maids club and then all will be over a proxism of hopeless sobs punctuated her remarks it was a terrible position frank groaned inwardly how was he to explain to this fair young thing that she loved nobody and could never hope to marry him there was no doubt that with her intense nature and her dreamy blue eyes she would pine away and die or worse she would live to be an old maid he made an effort to laugh it off tush he said all this is mere imagination i don't believe you really love anybody frank she drew herself up stony and rigid the warm tears on her poor white face frozen to ice have you nothing better than this to say to me after i have shown you my inmost soul the wretched young lawyer's face returned from white to red he could have faced a football team in open combat but these complex psychical positions were beyond the healthy young philistine for for give me he stammered i i am i that is to say Fladpick. oh how can i explain what i mean cecilia sobbed on every sob seemed to stick in frank's own throat his impotence maddened him was he to let the woman he loved fret herself to death for a shadow and yet to undeceive her were scarcely less fatal he could have cut out the tongue that first invented fladpick verily his sin was finding him out why can you not explain what you mean wept cecilia because i oh hang it all because i am the cause of your grief you she said a strange wonderful look came into her eyes the thought shot from her eyes to his and dazzled them Yes why not why should he not sacrifice himself to save this delicate creature from a premature tomb why should he not become the english shakespeare true it was a heavy burden to sustain but what will a man not dare or suffer for the woman he loves moreover was he not responsible for fladpick's being and thus for all the evil done by his frankenstein he had employed fladpick for his own amusement and the employer's liability act was heavy upon him. The path of abnegation, of duty, was clear. He saw it, and he went for it then and there, went, like a brave young Englishman, to meet his marriage. Yes, he said, I am glad you love Mr. Fladpick. Why? she murmured breathlessly. Because I love you. But, I do not love you, she said slowly. You will, when I tell you it is I who have provoked your love. Frank, is this true? On my word of honor, as an Englishman, are you Fladpick? If I am not, he does not exist. There is no such person. Oh, Frank, this is no cruel jest cecilia it is the sacred truth fladpick is nobody if he is not frank gray but you never lived in tartary of course not all that about fladpick is the veriest poetry but i did not mind it for nobody suspected me i'll introduce you to andrew mackay himself and you will hear from his own lips how the newspapers have lied about fladpick my noble modest boy so this was why you were so embarrassed before. But why not have told me that you were Fladpick? Because I wanted you to love me for myself alone. She fell into his arms. Frank, Frank, Fladpick, my own, my English Shakespeare, she sobbed ecstatically. At the next meeting of the Mutual Depreciation Society, a bombshell in a stamped envelope was handed to Mr. Andrew Mackay he tore open the envelope and the explosion followed as follows gentlemen i hereby beg to tender the resignation of my membership in your valued society as well as to anticipate your objections to my retaining the post of legal adviser i have the honor to hold i am about to marry the cynic will say i am laying the foundation of a mutual depreciation society of my own but this is not the reason of my retirement. That is to be sought in my having accepted the position of the English Shakespeare, which you were good enough to open up for me. It would be a pity to let the pedestal stand empty. From the various excerpts you were kind enough to invent, especially from the copious extracts in Mr. Mackay's articles, I have been able to piece together a considerable body of poetic work, and by carefully collecting every existing fragment and studying the most authoritative expositions of my aims and methods i have constructed several dramas much as professor owen reconstructed the mastodon from the bones that were extant as you know i had never written a line in my life before but by the copious aid of your excellent and genuinely helpful criticism i was enabled to get along without much difficulty I find that to write blank verse you have only to invert the order of the words and keep on your guard against rhyme. You may be interested to know that the last line in the last tragedy is coffined in English you he sleeps in peace. When written I got my dramas privately printed with a tartary trademark, after which I smudged the book and sold the copyright to make million and company for ten thousand pounds needless to say i shall never write another book in taking leave of you i cannot help feeling that if i owe you some gratitude for the lofty pinnacle to which you have raised me you are also not unindebted to me for finally removing the shadow of apprehension that must have dogged you in your sober moments i mean the fear of being found out mr andrew mackay in particular as the most deeply committed I feel owes me what he can never hope to repay for my gallantry in fitting the mantle designed by him, whose emptiness might one day have been exposed to his immediate downfall. I am, gentlemen, your most sincere and humble depreciator, the English Shakespeare. End of Chapter Thirteen.